Good morning. As we continue our study, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 again. And as I was reading Acts chapter 16, it reminded me of a situation that happened to me growing up in upstate New York. You'll put these together when we get to the text, but I'm going to go ahead and share with you uh, sort of what was going through my mind as I started reading the text. But when I was in the fifth grade, I wanted to make money, okay? And so I decided I'm going to get me a paper route. I got a paper route. Yes, I'm old, okay? So I got a paper route. I had the papers on the side. I had my 10-speed bike. I would deliver them papers, 28 papers, upstate New York, whether it was cold, snow, whatever the case is, I was delivering my papers. And so this particular day, for me to deliver my papers, I just got on my bike. It wasn't really that cold outside. I came up to a house. It was a friend of mine. His name is Todd Hughes. And so I walked up to his house, and as I was walking up to his house, the garage doors were shaking. And I thought, oh, somebody's getting ready to go to work. Instead of putting it into the screen door, I will just wait and give it to his parents as they're coming out. And I stood there, and I got frightened, scared to death, because the garage door shook longer than they should have, and they didn't move. The, drawers were, the doors were just shaking. Now listen, let me, under, let me help you understand something. About a week earlier, my friend Craig and I watched a movie we should not have watched. It was titled The Exorcist. Can I get an amen? Okay? So I'm standing in the driveway, and I'm watching those garage doors, and they're shaking, but not going up. I told Jesus right there at that time, God, I want you to know I will do anything you want me to do. I will be a pastor one day. So now how you know how it happened? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. That part wasn't true. Anyway, I pled God, please, and I just got scared. I took the paper, I threw it down in the driveway, and I rode away. About five, ten minutes later, the minivan did not pull up because we did not have minivans at that time. We had the grocery getter called the station wagon. It was my dad. He pulled up beside me and he said, hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah. I thought he had caught me in my movie watching, and so I looked at him and I said, I'm fine. Why? He said, well, we just had an earthquake, a 4.1 on the Richter scale, and I just wanted to make sure you're okay. And I right there became Pentecostal <laughs> because I was praising Jesus that Todd Hughes' house was not possessed. <laughs> okay? I went back to his house, took the paper off the driveway, put it in the door. They didn't know anything. Now, you're saying, what in the world does that have to do with Acts chapter 16? You're going to find out. All right? So Acts chapter 16, we're going to go through because we've got really three conversations this morning. Three conversations. Three conversations in the text. We are going to take a look at those conversations. The first one is Lydia, who is a good, strong, moral, church-going girl. Moral, businesswoman. Jerry talked about her last week. The emphasis of Jerry talking about Lydia last week was more to do with the spirit leading you. We're going to take a look at her conversation. We're going to take a look at a demon-possessed slave girl's conversation with Paul. And then we're also going to take a look at a jailer and his conversation with Paul and how we can learn three lessons. Not four lessons, because Jerry had four last week, and so I went to seminary and listened, okay? He had four last week, and so he made a statement that in seminary class, you're only supposed to have three points. So I've got three conversations and three points. So the first conversation that we see here is Lydia. And so let's take a look at what it says 
in Acts chapter 16, in, uh, starting in verse 13. So this is Acts 16, verse 13. Before I read, I want us really to appreciate how God in his sovereignty moves us from talking about all of these people that are getting saved, like 3,000 people and and then 5,000 men, and there was 120 to begin with. And now it gets really personal because we serve a personal God. He knows the hairs on top of our head. In my case, the lack thereof sometimes. But what I'm saying is, is that he is a personal, personal God. He knows who we are. And and what I want us to do when we go through the book of Acts is, yes, we see that 3,000 and we see that 5,000 and we see, oh my gosh, the church is now 20,000 people. But I want us to get really deep into looking at these three conversations, these three people whose lives were wrecked by the gospel for the fame of his name. And so we pick it up with Lydia in verse 13. Here's what it says. What I'm going to do is read, make a couple of observations, read and make a couple of observations, and then the points will come at the end. I just want to let you know where we're going. So here's 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So it was traditional in this culture right now that if you rejected the Roman paganism belief system of that time that you would retreat and go off to water. Most of the time you would go and you would worship in a synagogue. But this is the city of Philippi. It's a brand new city and there is no synagogue at this time. Paul and Silas are on the second of their third missionary journey and they're coming into the city. They're coming into this city right now and what they do is they know it's the Sabbath day. We want to encounter people. We want to share with them the message of the gospel. And so they go down at the Sabbath, they go down to the water because sometimes in the actual worship service at the water, they would go down there and there would be a cleansing purpose for them to gather at the water. And so they would go down to the riverside, which is a bunch of ladies that gathered together and Paul and Silas gathered and they met them by the orchestration of the great God we serve. Now, when I take a look at the Greek of this word where it says they spoke to the women who had come together, the Greek phrase that when you, when you sort of um, unpack that, it says, this is the first Bethmore Bible study ever recorded. Okay? So this is a Bethmore Bible study before Bethmore started. But here they are gathered together and then they're studying together. And Paul comes up upon them with Silas. Let's keep going. Two, verse 14. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So let's just basically take a look. Lydia from Thyatira and City. Jerry said last week that the color purple was signifying that it was the color of the king. Okay, so it, it demonstrated that she had wealth. It demonstrated, the color purple really demonstrated that she was someone of great wealth. It also signified that she was gathering together at the riverside. So what she had done is she had rejected the paganism of the Romans. She was over here. So really what we understand from the text is that she was a moral, wealthy businesswoman who was at this time a fan of God, but not yet a follower. Please understand that there is a drastic difference between a fan of God and a follower of God. 
And this is who Lydia is at this time. And then things are getting ready to change. The rest of 14 says this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We have the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians, who killed Christians, on Acts, in Acts chapter 9, was overcome by the grace of God, gave his life to the Lord, and did everything he could to make much of Jesus and bring fame to his name. Paul is on this second missionary journey, and God opens up her heart and uses her, opens up her heart and uses his Holy Spirit to reveal to her the truth of what this man is saying. So that she can move from being a fan of himself, fan of God, to a follower of God. And it is so different. And what I would want you to know something that there are people that you right now are trying to witness to and share with. Or at least I hope you are. And I want you to know that it is only God, not your eloquence or lack thereof, that allows God to open up their heart. And it is right here saying that she gathered together, she heard the words, but it was the Lord who opened her heart. Let's not mistake anything about this. This is the work of God, not the work of man. This is the work of God, and we see that in this situation, in this conversation, and we will see it in the others. Let's go to 15. As she was, and after, she, and after she was baptized, and her house, And her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. What we see in here is her response to now being a follower of God. She tells her family, her family comes to faith in Christ. Not only does her family come to faith in Christ, but she looks at these missionaries that are coming in. They don't have any place to go. And she says, hey, come on, stay at our house. She's hospitable. You can see the fruit of her life of faith by how she responds. Now we go to the second conversation. We go to the demon-possessed slave girl. We have a demon-possessed slave girl, and this is what verse 16 of chapter 16 says. And so as they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So you have the Romans and what they're doing is they're taking this girl. And it is basically what it is. It is financial prostitution. They're using this girl to gain wealth. And her ability to predict and talk and use tarot cards or whatever the case they're using at that time. They're using this this situation to gain financial wealth. And then Paul gets annoyed. And let's look at 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And 18, And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. You're probably asking the question, Why in the world is Paul annoyed if she's falling around telling him that they are the way of salvation? She's not doing to proclaim the message of salvation. She is doing it in mockery or condescension. That's why Paul's annoyed. She is following them around and mocking them. And Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, verse 18, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Please let that encourage you. That in the name of Jesus, there is great power. 
Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, that is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and the Gentile. We have a bold declaration of the power of the gospel right here. That the power of the gospel is able to overcome those that are stuck in the occult, oppressive faith systems, whatever the case is. The gospel is more powerful than that. And Paul looks at her and says, come out. I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. The question that has been asked several times is, well, the spirit came out of her, but does it really mean that she was a Christian? Number one, I'm going to ask you to look at verse 19 because that shows us her response or the response. And then I'll read you a quote by a comment that Matt Chandler had when he wrote a book on Philippians. I'll read verse 19 and I want you to see her response. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. So here's the deal. The spirit came out of her. They knew that they could not use her anymore. So there's big questions sometimes of, well, did she really become a believer or were the demons just cast out of her? Here's what Matt Chandler in connection with Matthew 12 says. Here's how the demonic works. In an, if an evil spirit is cast out and something doesn't move into that space, then the evil spirit will not just return, but it will return with some friends. The person will be worse off after than before. Her owners have realized after the spirits had been cast out that they could no longer make any money. It appears that someone has moved into the house. That's why I say our sweet little slave girl is in the family of God. In addition to that, I believe that these three conversations are there to help you and I realize the, pers- the personal aspect of the gospel. It's not 5,000 men. It's not 3,000 people. It's not 120. It is specifically, in this text, Lydia, a religious, moral, wealthy businesswoman. A demon-possessed slave girl. Then we come on to the next conversation. We'll, we'll meet the jailer here in just a minute. Let's find out what happens to Paul and Silas. They seize Paul and Silas, this is the end of 19, and drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. Verse 20, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That's why they gathered at the river, Lydia and her Bible study group. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Here we are introduced to the jailer. Let me just make sure you understand that the jailer is an older man coming off of battle. Normally what would happen is you would fight in the Roman army. Then at the end of your career, near retirement, you would go into and you would be in the jail taking care of prisoners. Your main responsibility was to make sure that they were locked up and did not get free. And if they did get free, your life was at stake because you would take their place. And so that's who we have. We have this jailer who's close to retirement. And you can also say that you get closer to retirement. You're ready to finish. You could might say, I don't think we're doing, I don't think I'm taking an excess amount of freedom here. You might even say he's a little bit grumpy. 
And it says that they were in the inner prison, not just a prison. We're not talking about house arrest. We're not talking about a prison. We're talking about the inner prison. Make sure we know that the inner prison is basically uh, the bottom. It's almost like the basement. It's actually where all the excrement would flow into. That's the prison that Paul and Silas are in. It says they were in stocks. Now, many of you have been to King's Dominion, and you've probably had a photo op with your girlfriend or your spouse or your friend or whatever the case is. You put your hands in, you put your head in, and hi, Instagram that, hashtag theme park, Disney World, whatever the case is. But you've got this. This is not the kind of stock that they are in right now. This is not a photo op. Let me read you about the Roman stock. The Roman stocks were chains suspended from the ceiling. They'd lay you on your back and hook your ankles into the clamps and pull you upside down and then strike you on the bottom of your feet. Unbelievably painful, smelly, dark, dirty. And they right now, they right now, coming into a city, coming off of a boat, going into Philippi because the Holy Spirit of God ordained this. And they meet this religious girl, this wealthy religious girl. Then they meet this demon-possessed girl. And then they come in and they get arrested and thrown in jail. And so they are mad. They're coming close to saying some really bad words. No. That's not what they were doing. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas. Remember, this is after getting the biggest beating of their life. Paul and Silas were praying. And they were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. In verse 26, here comes the earthquake. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoner had escaped. Your main job as a guard, a grumpy, crotchety, almost retired guard was you got to make sure that the prisoners stay in the prison, that you keep them locked up. That was your job. He sees that the place is shaken. He sees the doors opened. He sees the doors open and thinks, oh my gosh, everybody's gone. He's like, I will have to pay for, I will have to um, give my life because I let them go or I didn't do my job. So he was going to take things in his own hand. And right at the moment that he did that, here's what Paul says in verse 28. He is distressed. He's anxious. Paul says, Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And so here's what you would say. You would think that the doors are open and the prisoners are like, I am free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And they are trying to run and get away. And they do the complete opposite of that. They stay And I believe they stayed because they wanted to see the jailer come to faith in Jesus. And it says they were there. And the jailer, look at this, here's 29. Old, crotchety, almost retired jailer, verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And verse 30, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul got this list together and said, there are 613 things that you've got to do in order to follow him. It starts with, it's not what he said. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set foot before them and he rejoiced. Oh my gosh. The Bible's, that's the same word that we get for joy. He says, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Notice his response, a lot like Lydia's response. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then all of a sudden, he gets it. And then he demonstrates it. Brings them to his household, cleans up their wounds, bandages them, feeds them. In the midst of that, the whole house gets saved. And in verses 35 through 40, which we're not going to read right now, it summarizes where they get freed from prison And they go on and they talk to Lydia. They go back to Lydia and they encourage Lydia. Because here's what Paul was trying to do. He was trying to plant churches in the city of Philippi. And these three right now, I believe, make up a big, big early demonstration of that church. We have the first converts that we notice right here in in Philippi. And so here's here's our three lessons that we can learn. We always come to the table and when we, we come to the table, we always say, do this in remembrance of... And so this text right now is is really for us so that we'll remember. And here's the first thing I want us to remember. Number one, I want us to remember this. Remember the gospel is for all people. I'm not trying to make this any more difficult than it has to be. This week I was sitting back looking at this text, going to preach this, and I'm going, man, we've been talking about the mission of God, the Holy Spirit, salvation, what it means for a long time. I'm like, God, I feel like I've already said that. And I really feel like in my spirit, he said, yeah, go do it again. Because I feel like our church needs to know that. And I I sense and I hear that if we have a continual message that we continue to hear, then God is obviously trying to tell us something that maybe we're not quite there, but we could be getting close. It's a healthy Holy Spirit-led redundancy so that we might be about the greatest thing that's ever happened, the mission of God. And so the gospel is for all people. As I said, we've got Lydia, the church-going girl. We've got the the, the demon-possessed girl. We've got the distressed jailer who is really in a distressed position. And all of them get rescued by the gospel because we know that this is what makes up the church. We're not all the same. Praise God. Amen. The gospel is for all people. That's number one. Number two, I want you to remember this, that relationship. Number two is the relationships are key. Relationships are key. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus that he prepared in advance for us to do. The word workmanship is the word poem. Listen, you and I have a responsibility to make much of Jesus and we need to understand that relationships are incredibly pivotal to the mission that's going forward. If we take a look here, it is Paul going down by the river and he meets a Bible study group of ladies and Lydia comes to faith in Christ in her whole household. Then he's going as he is going, this girl comes up and mocks him 
and condescends him. And God overcomes her with his grace. And this jailer gets overcome just as well. We must realize that there are people from all walks of life that are in our spheres of influence that we have a responsibility to help learn about who he is. Relationships are are incredibly key. I would ask that we not define our success here at Northwest based on how many people come to our building ever. I would ask that we define our success by how many people are being sent and going and on mission. That on Sundays we get to come in here and we get to celebrate radically what God did Monday through Saturday in your world and in my world. And then we get to celebrate watching God do what God does. The gospel's for all people and relationships are key. I'd encourage you, have a plan for Halloween this year to engage people that might come to your house. Have a plan for Christmas, how you're going to engage people at your house. We cannot relate to them if we do not know them. Let's come to their world just like Paul did to the woman that was there by the river trying to figure out, I'm a fan of God, but I want to be a follower of God. She knows that the paganism of the Romans is not real. Let's go to the riverbank for the glory of God. Relationships are key. Number three, the last one we have is this is that we must remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I'm sitting here right now, and i got to be honest with you, I'm overwhelmed at this one right here. I'm overwhelmed at the beating that these men took and the response that we see. I'm overwhelmed at that. I, I'm blown away. I mean, some of us right now, we're in the jail of a really bad marriage, and all we can talk about is the jail of being in a bad marriage. We're in the jail of a job we can't stand. We're in a jail of a job we don't like. So instead of talking about how good God is, we talk about how bad those situations are. And what, it would, what would it look like that in, in the midst of the pain, we're not asking God, what have I done wrong for you to cause this to happen in my life? Instead, what if we were to ask the question, God, who do you want me to impact through my suffering? And in my suffering, Use me in the midst of my joy. This was clearly demonstrated to me this week. Paul and Beth Newman are going through a very difficult time. Had a conversation with Beth, whose family is really, really part of our church. And her mom and dad live in Norfolk, Virginia. Her sister lives in Norfolk, Virginia. And they're up there. And Beth is being responsible for taking care of them. And Paul is here with the family. And... um, All of a sudden, Thursday morning, my father-in-law goes for an MRI, and all of a sudden, I get a text from Beth in the midst of really bad news this week for her sister. And it's a text to me and Dana, and it's a prayer. It is a prayer declaring the joy of the Lord. It's a prayer that was declaring, I'm going to fight. I don't understand, but I'm going to fight. And I'm sitting there looking at these guys that are in a prison, and it is overwhelming to them. And I'm sitting there listening. God, let us respond in the joy of the Lord because it is our strength. What I'm overwhelmed with is that people are watching. Let us let them see our joy for the glory of God, for the fame of his name, not for us. So my my prayers we come to the table is that we will remember. We're gonna remember that, that there's this church girl who became a follower of Jesus. There's a demon-possessed girl, and she became a follower of Jesus. And there's a jailer 
who was an old, crotchety, retired guy, and he became a follower of Jesus. He was really anxious. So I'd ask you the question right now. If you grew up in church and you, were, you grew up in church and then all of a sudden one day in your life you realize, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Going to church is not being a Christian. Placing my faith in Jesus is a Christian. If you grew up like a Lydia, or that's your story, I'm putting my hand up so I'm helping you. Raise your hand if that's you. Come on, don't be shy. That's you. Hold it up right there, right there. Then, then, then if you're anxious, just overwhelmed and anxious right now, it, who is that? Okay. Some of us got two hands up. So I'm trying to help you to get Pentecostal and get freed up in here, okay? And you are really, really, really Baptist right now. We're not Baptist, but I'm just saying, you're very Baptistic right now. I'm just trying to help you. Listen, who do you identify in this message? Who do you identify? Are you Lydia? Are you the slave girl? Are you the jailer? If you're here today and you're religious, I'm telling you right now, don't leave without saying yes to Jesus. Repent and believe in him because he will save you right here, right now. I'm telling you, he'll do it. And it's beautiful. And we, we come here and we listen to the text and we have an opportunity to sit here and come to the table. I want us to celebrate God by two things as we conclude our service. I want us to come and I want us to remember his body was given to us. I want us to remember that it's a symbol that he died for us. It's a symbol that we could be reminded that you cannot do this on your own. I want us to be reminded that we need him, desperately need him. And I want us to be reminded that the cup is a symbol of his blood that was shed for us, that we need forgiveness of sins and we can't do it. We're not God. And he did it. And so we come here every eight weeks or so And we get to remember all that he did. Because we're really good at forgetting. Just want you to get a couple of minutes alone with God. I want you to sit and ask the question. Am I religious? Or am I a follower? Am I just a fan? Ask another question. Are you really on mission with who he is? Like I said... This is a Holy Spirit ordained redundancy for the way our church lives out this mission of making disciples for the glory of God. So why don't we go ahead and I'm gonna pray for us. Take some time praying as we come to the table. God, I love you and I thank you for this time. Over the next 30 minutes as we come to take communion, as we sing songs, as we give through the share fund, God, move in our hearts. God, you opened Lydia's heart. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Silas. It wasn't the Bible study. It was you. So open our hearts right here, right now. If there's someone in here that doesn't know you, let them get saved right here, right now. Just have them call on you right now. Let us come to the table and remember that your body was given to us and your blood was shed for us so that we could live and live in freedom and make a difference for your great name. So use this time, quiet our hearts and speak to us. We ask you, God, to move in our hearts, to open our hearts, to help us to not just come to the table traditionally or out of just memorization or what we normally do. Speak to us. Thank you for your body. Thank you for the cup, the juice. We bless it. We ask you to use it to help us in our sanctification. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
Holy God, you are good and there is no one like you. Thank you that we get to sing about you. Thank you that we get to sing to you. Thank you that we get to pray to you. Thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you will do and all that you have done. We remember you. We're grateful for you. Thank you that the gospel is for all people. Thank you that relationships are key. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, let us live that and respond that way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.